Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. As many of you know, a few weeks ago, we welcomed our second daughter, Garner, into the world. So while I'm with you here and now, I am a little wonky from sleep deprivation, but I was able to change clothes, so I do believe I don't smell like throw up or baby poop this morning if you come close to me after this. Now, Garner came after nine long months of waiting and preparation. The build-up to her birth was marked by hope, longing, and eager expectation. Now, while Paige and I are just coming out of this period, the church is entering into this season. This Sunday marks the beginning of Advent. Advent is a set-aside time that allows us to celebrate the birth of Jesus while also looking with anticipation to his second coming. Advent is all about this king, which is why there is so much color of purple. Purple is the color of royalty. Over these next four weeks, we'll be preaching through lectionary texts. These sermons will help us better understand the meaning of Advent and God's gift to us in this season. Specifically this morning, though, I want to hone in on an idea that Advent reminds God's people of their destiny, that Advent reminds God's people of their destiny. As John mentioned last week, Christians are pilgrims who are headed somewhere. We are people whose future will be ushered in by the second coming of Christ. Our passage this morning, Zechariah 14, provides us with some details of this coming day of the Lord. Many of us aren't all that familiar with the book of Zechariah. So, uh, just as a brief reminder, it's found in the Old Testament, and it is apocalyptic literature. So, it's set after the people of Israel have returned to Jerusalem after their exile to Babylon. God's people have been refugees for almost 70 years, and the prophet Zechariah is challenging and motivating God's people to look for the future fulfillment of God's promises. These last few chapters of Zechariah expound upon the vision of the messianic kingdom that is to come. So Zechariah 14 falls within these final chapters. And as I said earlier, it offers us a picture of the future, for it describes the coming day of the Lord. And for our purposes as people who are reading this book centuries after it was written, it gives us into a window of what Christ's second coming will look like. But we need to buckle up this morning because we're in for a bumpy ride. Rather than immediate bliss, the coming day of the Lord is marked by suffering, conflict, and injustice. It's a day that's inaugurated by strife. This is the first truth of our passage this morning. So I want you uh, to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to page 799 if you're not already there. At Holy Trinity, we want you to check all of our words against Scripture, which is why we want you to look at the Scripture as we walk through it. So now that you're there, look with me beginning at verse, verses 1 through 3 of Zechariah 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall be cut off from the city. Our text describes a painful scene. 
Jerusalem is under siege. The enemies of Israel have momentarily prevailed. Israel never even had a chance because as the text says, all the nations have gathered against Jerusalem. Israel's few possessions will be plundered and adding insult to injury, they'll have to watch as these items are divided right in front of them by their foes. Every person in this city will experience some form of injustice. Women will experience sexual violence while family members are separated from each other. A sorting will take place where half of all people will once again be exiled from the city while the other half will remain tasked with picking up broken pieces of their lives. As I said, this is a brutal and ominous picture. There's no way to soften this text or get around the pain of this passage. It forces us to grapple with the reality that God prompts this judgment. The text says that this day is, quote, for the Lord, meaning that it's his day. A verse later it reads, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. This is the only place that a first-person pronoun is used in our passage. God is the one who will gather the nations. Even though humanity deserves this type of judgment, it's still painful, and it leaves us dazed and confused. Now, much ink has been spilled on the topic of evil and how a good God can allow suffering, let alone prompt it. Many of us wonder about this question as well. While our cities have not been plundered and we haven't been cast into exile, we too have experienced suffering, although in our own 21st century ways. Some of you may have experienced the death of children and spouses. Others have felt the sting of fractured relationships. Many of you have shed tears as friends have suffered from chronic diseases or various forms of addictions. The church can't explain all the whys behind these tragic situations. But what it can do is point to the story of Advent. Jesus took on human form to share in our experiences, especially the painful ones. We must view any past, present, or future suffering through the lens of the cross of Christ. Jesus experienced absolute physical and spiritual suffering on the cross. And so this allows him to act as our advocate who can stand shoulder to shoulder with us for he knows all of our pain. We need to remind ourselves of this over and over again because pain and suffering, those are one of life's few constants. Remember, Zechariah is describing a future experience of the people of God. We too can expect strife, pain, and injustice, especially when Jesus returns a second time to judge the living and the dead. You know, God never promises us health or wealth. Quite the contrary. Jesus in John 16, says, in this world you'll have tribulation. Another way to translate tribulation is trouble. So hearing that again, so in this world you will have trouble. But listen how the verse ends. But take heart, I have overcome the world. God has overcome the world, especially all forms of evil and darkness. This is the next observation we can glean from our text. Zechariah 14 reorients to the reality that God procures salvation for his people. Look with me at verses three and four. Then the Lord will go out 
and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. I want to turn your attention to the word then. Once the nations convene in one location, then he goes out to wage war against them. God hasn't turned a blind eye to evil and suffering brought about by the wicked. Rather, he strategically maneuvers these people in such a way that they can no longer hide or cover. When I was a boy, and even now, one of my favorite Christmas movies is Home Alone. Has anyone seen Home Alone? Do you know that movie? Some people out there? Since we've passed Thanksgiving, it's officially okay to start watching Christmas movies now. Well, in this movie, Kevin McAllister, who's a young boy, is forgotten by his parents as they leave to visit some friends over the holidays. And therefore, he's home alone. Throughout the whole movie, Kevin fights against these two criminals who are attempting to rob his home, Harry and Marv. Repeatedly, Kevin lures these crooks into homemade-style traps. Kevin and Marv end up stepping on ornaments and nails. They slip down oiled stairs, and at one point, Marv has his head scorched by a flamethrower. It's hysterical in the movie. But here's the important part. Every time these crooks think they have the upper hand, they are right where Kevin wants them. Similarly, God always has evil right where he wants it. And on that day, when he comes again, God will gather every one of his evil, every one of his enemies, to utterly destroy them. You know, God has always been in control. These enemies of God have walked right into a trap, and they have nowhere to flee. Notice God's positioning in this text. His feet stand on the Mount of Olives. God hasn't sent in his generals to do the work while he remains in the distant camp. No. He himself shows up for battle. He enters the fray. God is above Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. He stands as victor, lifted up for all to see. Now how does he achieve this victory over evil? While this specific text doesn't answer that question, we see the full picture later in the New Testament. Jesus is arrested on this very same Mount of Olives. He lays his life down and achieves triumph through death. God in Christ comes and conquers evil not through brutal strength or by force of will, but rather through humble sacrifice. Many of us, myself most included, need to be reminded of this. We need the reorientation provided by Advent, that God alone is the author of salvation. Salvation won't come through goodwill towards mankind or by saving the planet. It won't come through the resurgence of a Christian nation or by having Christian leaders. Salvation unequivocally comes through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Full stop. Amen? Amen. God alone makes the way of salvation for his people. Look at what happens in verses 4 and 5. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west 
by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of my mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquakes in the day of Uzziah, king of Judah. God splits the mountains to create a highway into his presence. What was once a difficult trek has now been made easy. God makes a way for his people as he did in Exodus 14 with the splitting of the Red Sea. And we know this way is through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to notice two sets of repeated words, flee and mountain. In the Old Testament, God meets his people on the mountains. Think of the stories of Moses with the Ten Commandments or Elijah where he meets God through the silence, not in the flames or the earthquake. God is inviting his people to set up base camp under the shadow of his presence. This text says that the valley will reach to Azal. Scholars aren't sure of the location of Azal, but they assume it marks the end of this eastern valley. Likewise, there's some uncertainty about this reference to earthquakes in the days of Uzziah. What is certain, though, is that God is commanding his people to flee with haste. They are to leave the world they knew behind and urgently press onwards to his presence. His presence is the refuge and defense. People are fleeing into strength. They're not running away from something they're running towards someone. This flight is to rally the company of God before the final charge. It's to rally the company of God before the final charge. Look at the end of verse five. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. One of my favorite movies is The Lord of the Rings, especially the third one, The Return of the King. In this movie, there's a scene in which the riders of Rohan come to the aid of mankind at the battle of Minas Tirith. After the initial charge against the orcs and goblins, the soldiers are dispersed and scattered. When another army of mercenary arrives, the king of Rohan, Theoden, cries out after a horn blows, rally to me, rally to me. At these words, the troops rally around the king and form up for the final charge. This is what I picture is happening in this biblical scene. God rallies his holy ones to himself. Then together, this godly company usher in the kingdom of God. Many scholars believe that the holy ones are the angelic hosts, and this is likely true. However, I don't think it's a stretch to surmise that the saints are with him as well. This divine company of conquerors returns back through that channel in the Mount of Olives and declares utter victory over Jerusalem. When this final day of absolute victory arrives, everything will be forever altered. This is the hope we have to look forward to. It's the hope that Advent points to. This is the final observation of our text. Zechariah 14 details that the coming day of the Lord restores reality. Let's turn back to verse six. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord. 
neither day or night, but in, even, but in evening time there shall be light. On that day living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. God's presence ripples into the cosmos, and it alters heaven and earth alike. Time, season, temperature are all reimagined and renewed. God's presence will radiate eternal light and make a unique and eternal day, unlike anything we've ever seen before. These changes are cosmic changes of the highest order. Water, which was a precious resource, shall flow abundantly and unconditionally from Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be a new garden of Eden, the epicenter of reality, quenching the thirsts of the nations. There will be no more barren or salty lands, for Jerusalem's refreshing waters will cascade into the earth. In that place, God will reign, and Jesus will be the living water for all. Now, even though we know what is to come, it's a struggle struggle to keep our eyes focused on this future reality. Division, pain, distraction, especially strife, these things turn us inward upon ourselves. These things squash our hope. Therefore, we must be routined and disciplined in training our spiritual instincts. We need to train our spiritual instincts so that when that day comes, we might respond faithfully. You know, properly trained instincts will be crucial because on that day, the Lord will come suddenly. To use language from verse four, an experience, it will be like an experience as similar to an earthquake. If you've ever been in an earthquake, you know there's no warning. They just happen out of the blue. All you can do is react by instinct in that moment. You flee from things that might fall on you or you run outside to safety. We too must train our instincts to flee to God's presence. We need to abandon the illusions and false fantasies of this world and instead seek refuge in the presence of the Lord. How can we do this though? We need to know what has a hold over our hearts. So here's a question I wanna ask you this morning. I'm gonna come at this application in a different way. When the day of the Lord comes, what will make it hard for you to flee? What will make it hard for you to flee on that day? The reason I ask this is that what keeps us from the kingdom now is what will keep you from the kingdom in the future. So really, what would hinder your flight? Will you get tripped up by certain creature comforts? Will you delay due to spiritual apathy, regression? Will you struggle to leave this earthly kingdom you've built? This season of Advent, it offers each of us the time to evaluate our hearts and discern what has a hold over us. St. Clair of Assisi pens this quote that I think is helpful. We become what we love, and who we love shapes who we become. If we love things, we become things. If we love nothing, we become nothing. Once we realize what will hold us back, 
we must pursue growth within a community. You know, when many of us think about change, we often think in intellectual or individualistic terms. But humans, we're communal beings. Growth occurs exponentially in community through osmosis. This is the second instinct we need to train. We must hardwire our brains to rally with the people of God. We need to train our instincts to rally with the people of God. Going back to that St. Clair of Assisi quote, she writes, who we love shapes who we become. I think said another way, we become like those that were around. We become like those that were around. You know, this is why we often mimic closest friends' mannerisms, their habits, and at times, most dangerously, their loves and values. We need to choose our company wisely because they will help or hurt us in the long run. You know, when a crisis occurs, we'll likely rally to those we spend the most time with. So here's another question for you. Who do you spend the majority of your time with outside of family? And this includes relationships that are one way, such as through TV, social media, news outlets, or literature. Is it a person or a group of people who most notably share the same uh, social, professional, political, or collegiate affiliations? Or is it with the people of God who are training their instincts to flee to God's presence? You know, if we're serious about responding well on the day of the Lord, we must make decisions that will help us rally with God's people. Friends, use this season of Advent to evaluate who is shaping you. In closing, Advent offers us a time to train our instincts, to flee to God's presence, and to rally with the people of God. We need to have these instincts because the day of the Lord, as we heard, will be marked by strife. It's going to be hard. But suffering will not be the final word. God offers salvation. He makes the way. God comes in the form of Jesus Christ, born as a child. And when we put our trust in him in this life, we can be assured that our future will be with him when he comes again. But in the here and now, in this season of Advent, what will consume your thoughts and who will take up your time? Amen.